0: Just reminding yourself about those things that matter and the ways of being that we've come to realize. Then putting that pause and putting that time for reflection to say, did I operate from love, not fear and greed and anger? Did I knowingly cause harm to anybody? Did I focus on what really matters? And have I been committed to the truth? But I think it requires just that mindfulness. It gets back to mindfulness. If you're mindful, then you're going to be observing your own behavior, noting it and correcting it over time to say, yeah, this is when I fell out of that. You know, So I think that to me is what it means to stay awake, is to stay mindful and observe, be the observer of our own reactions and actions. And over time, get, get it aligned more and more. It's a work in progress, I think for all of us, and we all constantly fall off the wagon multiple times a day, but I think it gets better over time.
1: Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to
0: get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules until you're an insider.
1: Your Life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do Greetings everyone, my name is Julie Masters and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now here's today's question. What makes you who you are? Now, I know, I know that is a massive, complex question. However, if you think about it, there would have been a few pivotal moments, a few pivotal relationships and possibly conversations that set you on the path you're on today. And beyond that path, those moments would have also laid the wiring for how you now react, decide and decode the world around you. Essentially laying the foundations for how you show up in every single situation, relationship, and moment of your life. Today's episode is a little different to usual, as it has a very autobiographical feel to it. But although this episode is all about my guest's lifelong journey, which led to the completion of his latest book, the lessons learned along the way are, I feel, a roadmap for anyone that wants to examine and possibly reimagine their life. My guest today is friend of the show, Raj Sisodia. Raj is an acclaimed thought leader, speaker and author, co-founder of the Conscious Capitalism Movement. He has written a number of the core texts from that field, including Firms of Endearment, Conscious Capitalism, Everybody Matters, with past guest and incredible human being Bob Chapman and The Healing Organization. His latest book, Awaken, The Path to Purpose, Inner Peace and Healing, is a guide to leading a life of meaning, purpose and fulfillment with practical advice on how to know yourself, love yourself, be yourself and express yourself from a place of choice rather than a place of habit and repetition. This is Raj's second time on the podcast, the first time we dove into his journey starting and leading the conscious capitalism movement. This time, we go deeper into the moments and events and experiences that led to who he became and who he now chooses to become in this next chapter of his life. Some of those moments include Raj's definition of what it means to awaken, including the acronym he developed, LIST, which he now uses as a roadmap for decision-making and the choices he makes in his life, List standing for, and you'll hear more about this love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. His journey of self discovery and the strength it takes to dismantle the parts of our lives and personalities that, if we really feel into it, are no longer working. How he responded to the realization that he was living his life out of fear and need for belonging and approval rather than the pursuit of joy how we can find the courage to step away when things don't feel right, and the curiosity to ask, could there be a better way? And finally, why our core childhood memories often hold the key to what we most need to re-examine in order to move forward. Now, a couple of quick notes on this one. This episode does contain both mentions and memories of violence and abuse. As always, I'm going to leave it to your instincts to decide what's healthy for you and any listening ears around you. Also, I recorded this episode having just arrived to begin our year in Spain when our lives as a family and some necessary cables were all in boxes. So for this episode, rather than waste the moment, I flew naked without a microphone. So apologies if the sound quality isn't quite up to the usual standards. As they say here in Spain, poco y poco. For those of you who are ready to take your journey in influence to the next level, do not forget, hop on my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence in your life, in your industry or in your career. Just pop in your email address, and I promise it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to make a cup of tea. On that note, sit back, caffeine up, stride on, cycle out, vision up, and enjoy the incredible Raj Sisodia. Welcome back to the podcast, Raj Sisodia. So lovely to have you back.
0: Really happy to be back, Uh, Julia. I really enjoyed our first conversation, and I always wanted to have a a, a follow up.
1: (laughs) Well, when you sent me your latest book, I kind of knew that we we had to we had to talk again. And as you know, as I have said to you, I, I sat and I read. I sat down and I read the book in one in one sitting. So seriously, that was the. I think it was beautiful timing for me. I think it will be beautiful timing for a lot of people who are, who are listening to the podcast. But before we get into Awaken and everything that is contained within Awaken, um, I want to start the podcast as I usually do, which is to ask you the question, is there, is there one idea and it could be related to Awaken? It might not be. Is there an idea that's really resonating with you at the moment, something that's really influencing your thinking? It could be an old idea, a new idea, a timeless idea. What one idea is, is influencing you right now?:
0: Well, as I thought about that, you know, one of the things I've been uh, saying lately, which I've realized recently is is that my business education only focused on the head and the wallet. right? So it was the wallet and the intellect, but it left out the spirit and the heart. You know, I was never, in my six years, two years of MBA, four years of PhD. I was never once inspired. And I was never once emotionally moved by what I was learning. And I think that's a huge miss. You know, I think if you don't engage the spirit and the the heart, then you're really missing out on the, the humanity of the human being. And for me now, it's really about making sure for leaders and for my students that they constantly remind themselves, where's the spirit and heart in all of this. So of course, as is my want, I tend to create acronyms for things so this one is called wish so wish is wallet intellect spirit and heart and my wish is that we always keep all of those into account in making every decision uh, in in work because we think that work is all about money and all about our intelligence but actually it's about our life about our sense of fulfillment and meaning and joy and and all of those things, right? So if we leave out that, then I think we' miss a lot. and I, one of the things that triggered that thought for me was uh, I had the uh, unusual, I think rare experience of teaching an MBA class and teaching a case a Harvard case about a bank, and literally having students crying in my class. And that I've never experienced before. They' are crying emotion you know tears of joy of learning about this particular bank. It's called the Triodos Bank in the Netherlands. The case is called Conscious Money in Action. And this bank has a very clear purpose and they are so much in integrity in terms of how they make decisions with that purpose and their values in mind. And, and so, yeah, that, that really told me the power of that. I mean, the students are never going to forget that conversation.
1: Can you tell, I mean, can you expand on that a little bit? What, tell us a little bit more about the banking question.
0: Yeah, so the bank triodos, the triodos refers to the three um, dimensions of what makes for a flourishing society. It comes from Rudolf Steiner's work. So there's a healthy economy, a healthy ecology, and a thriving culture. And so the bank has a very clear set of guidelines that all the um, investing that they do or all of the loans that they give are going to be in support of those three things in a balanced way right? So they're not going to go too much on one dimension and then neglect the other. They believe all of all three need to be in place. And so they make tough decisions sometimes. They walk away from things which would be lucrative just from a return standpoint, but are not in harmony with what their vision is of a healthy and thriving society. And so those are the kinds of things that really touched people, you know, as to how they made their decisions and how you know, they, they don't compromise, you know, they are very firm on certain things. And the other, you know, for example, they they were one of the pioneers in lending for wind energy. And they in a way helped create that whole industry by by lending. And then the demand was so much that they could have completely just focused on that, you know, and they would have made more money. And But they said, no, this is not all of what we do. So they invited other banks into that them to start financing those things, etc. So it's those kind of things and you know just the, the values of the leaders and how they uh, operate with humility and with um, you know without that sort of empire building energy that is so common in business you know it's really about service and it's about making a difference. so yeah, I, I strongly recommend that, uh, that case for you to read.
1: And it's interesting you know you talk about wallet and intellect and spirit and heart. Um, and from my experience, both in my own life and career, but also experience of working with thought leaders and speakers and authors and change makers, um, you know, it's the spirit and the heart that are the fuel, you know, if you don't have that in alignment, you will burn out, you know, it will, there will be a natural end to how far you can take this, um. And so at some stage in a career, either from the beginning or there's a realignment that needs to happen, because without those two things in place, the fuel disappears eventually has been my has been my observation. And I think that your book, Awaken, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion, you know, and I'm, I'm part of a lot of those discussions, I'm driving a lot of those discussions about, you know, how our work can change the world, how ideas can change the world, how the conversations the, and the visions that we put out there in the world can change people's lives, industries, organisations, communities. But I think there's very little discussion about how that work changes us, how, the, how that work changes us if we let it we, we have a decision to make about whether we let our work change us or not and whether we decide to evolve with that work and often that means stepping into the fire letting things go that we've been holding on to really tightly examining things that we haven't looked at otherwise again we reach this point where we we can't take our impact any further we start to disconnect from our work from the things that you that used to fill us with passion. And I've seen a lot of people get to that point, and it's a conversation that's often had behind closed doors. It usually sounds, you know, something like, "I'm feeling, I'm feeling really burnt out. The things that used to excite me, or the ideas that used to, excite me, they just don't anymore. I'm feeling disconnected from my work, my purpose." Um, and so, your book, "Awaken," you know, there were so many moments in there for me where you could have stepped away from the fire, you could have not examined what was happening. Um, and you could have just kept going because you're, you know, extremely successful and, and have ideas that, that travel the, the entire globe. What was the, what was the lead up? What was the lead up to, to writing Awaken?
0: It really was a, a set of things that happened five years ago in 2018 when I was writing a book called The Healing Organization. And that was an idea that somehow spoke to me at a deep level. You know, I remember talking about it in 2016 when we were on a spiritual journey in India, uh, up in the high in the Himalayas, and we were tracing the the path of the Ganges from the mountains all the way to the Bay of Bengal. It was a beautiful 10 day trip, and we were having informal conversations. And this idea of healing uh, as the primary purpose of business—that business can be about healing. And it's not about healing businesses, it's not about saying we need more retreat centers like where I am right now, or yoga places. It's about saying business itself is a healing activity, both for the the doer and the receiver of, of that work. That when we are genuinely in service of meeting the needs of our fellow humans, and we do that with love and care, that's a healing act all around, right? But if I do that same act by saying that I'm going to serve myself and use others as opposed to, I'm going to express myself and serve others. The same exact set of things could be done products and services, but that could become a source of suffering. If it is about me serving myself and using others, and then I'll do whatever it takes right, to serve myself and make money. So that idea had been percolating for me. And then I was ready to write that book and I had the contract and I was all um, about to plunge into my typical writing uh mode which is a series of writing retreats where i go away for a week or sometimes two weeks uh, away uh, by myself somewhere in the mountains or in in the woods or somewhere and just day and night just work on it you know and i was getting ready to do that in the summer of 2018 and then four women stopped me in my tracks and they basically asked some version of the same question, you're writing a book about healing, but what about your own healing? And my initial response was, well, I don't have time for that. I've got a book deadline, October 5th. <laughs> and they said, no, you need to make time. You need to slow down. Uh, you need to go inward. You need to be in nature. One of them said, you need to smoke some pot, you know, and just... <laughs> connect with yourself because I was kind of, had been in that mode of frenzied activity and almost a panicked sense of urgency. I'm not sure why, but I think in my life, you know, for many years, my work had been the only thing that kind of mattered and the only thing that gave me any fulfillment. I had a very difficult time in the rest of my life in terms of relationships and family and so forth. So everything, this was an escape. Right? And I was constantly on the road and constantly, and I was certainly serving, living my purpose, but I was, as you said, burning out emotionally, mentally, and physically as well. And never making time for myself. And so they said, you know, I, I said, I have a book deadline. They said, no, book deadlines are flexible. I said, well, I think I'm okay. I don't think I need any healing. I said, no, you need healing. Everybody needs healing. And we know your story, a little bit of it, and you definitely should focus on that. So I had the courage I think and the wisdom to listen to them and I delayed that book by five months Um, and I said yes to a series of experiences which I had previously declined so one of them was another trip into a spiritual journey with the Shakti you know my co-author on Shakti leadership Nilima, she organizes these spiritual journeys around the world many are in India but also Machu Picchu or Israel or Croatia or other places like that as well and so she was organizing one uh, into Ladakh, which is the region of India on the border with Tibet, way on the high Himalayas, like literally twenty two thousand feet, and it's the deepest seat of Buddhist wisdom perhaps in the world, between the Tibetan side and the Indian side, and we visited many monasteries and you know and I turned sixty, you know that was the other part of it. This is the year I turned sixty, and I had my sixtieth birthday there up in up in the Himalayas and you know, I think it's a real milestone. You know, all these these round number birthdays come and go, but this one kind of really hit me a little. It's like, wow, this is this is like the end of the second act and the beginning of the third act. You know, if you think about it in those terms and a time for taking stock and making sense, what have I learned? It's been a kind of tumultuous life with all kinds of seemingly random you know, twists and turns, a lot of pain and and a lot of fulfillment as well. What have I learned and how does that inform the rest of my life and what do I do from here? And you know, how, what, what can I share that might help other people? You know, because we can all learn from our own experiences, but the genius of humans is we can also learn from other people's experiences and things that might have taken me decades to realize perhaps others could do so much more easily and quickly. And so, and so that was kind of the, the, the beginning of that. And then I also, I said yes to a, a silent retreat in upstate New York with about thirty-five other people: Peter Sengi, David Cooper, I, You know, some of the people that I consider my mentors and, and people that I really uh, follow and look up to—they were going to be there, but in silence, together, <clears throat> and um, that turned into a beautiful experience. We so rarely get the opportunity to be in silence. We're always inundated with information. And that includes things that we read off the internet, et cetera, but this is like no communication, right? You shut off all of that, verbal as well as intellectual inputs, and you're basically in nature. And uh, so I was walking around and carrying a journal. And by the end of it, I had like 45 pages of notes That things were just coming to me, you know, like downloads from somewhere. And you know, I got these seven steps that are going to be now the f- basis of my next book, actually. And I'm going to, uh, I'm writing already. Um, But a lot of realizations there. Then I also worked with a coach for the first time and she gave me some realizations that are in the book about what my journey had really been about up to that point. It was really about bringing my mother's energy into the world and honoring my mother with my work because that's what was missing in the world. And that's you know that's who I really was much more connected to was my mother. And she had a big impact on me. And then I went to the Amazon rainforest with the Pachamama Alliance and spend 10 days deep inside the uh, uh, Ecuadorian rainforest with two different indigenous people there, the Achuar and the Zapara. As you can imagine, that completely takes you out of your normal comfort zone, right? I mean, it's like a whole other world and experiencing nature in a whole different way and recognizing that we are indeed as much a part of nature as a tree or a bee, but we separate ourselves to our own great loss and of course, to the great detriment of our planet. When we do that, and how the people there have the wisdom to stay in harmony with nature and be part of it, and then also the healing um, ceremonies that they do with tobacco and various other things, but including ayahuasca, which is the ancient brew that I don't know ten thousand years ago they figured out that you take this, the root of one plant and the leaves of another, and boil them together, and you get this this incredibly potent psychoactive brew that. They call it the grandmother plant, as it connects you to that mother earth and grandmother energy. And I had a series of visions that night, which turned out to be quite profound for me. Um, and I had also started, you know, I had been introduced to the plant medicine world earlier that year in March, and I had some profound realizations out of that. So all of this came together as part of my preparation to write the Healing Organization. But I, at the end of that, I said, "My God, I've." I've learned so much that doesn't belong in that book that I I think I'm going to write another book sharing my experiences and what I've learned. So that eventually then turned into Awaken and became a little more of a memoir than I had intended. It was first just going to be those seven steps but that's the next book now which is called Healing Leaders Seven Steps to Recovery of Self. And so that's going to be about know yourself love yourself, be yourself choose your life, express yourself become whole and heal yourself. And I think those are the kind of stages that we need to go through in order to really come into our full being and full um, expression of who we are and what we are. You know, it's kind of removing all of the stuff that is that is uh, hiding our true self and the pristine self that we came here as with a particular purpose in this life. And how do we get to that, you know, that's kind of that exploration. So we heal ourselves and by healing ourselves, uh, as leaders, then we have a healing effect on others, otherwise, we end up causing suffering for others because we have all the unhealed wounds within us and the lack of wholeness within us
1: it's I think it's easy to underestimate just listening to you what that takes you know it's 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 easy to listen to it and go, okay, that was a' great treat and and coaching, and counselling, and listening to mentors, and spending time in silence and reflection. Um, but massively easy to underestimate exactly what it takes to do that. What it takes to have the courage to step into the the fire of it, because you you know all of that work sounds very peaceful but the peace comes after the work, right? Like the peace, it's, it's not peaceful work while you're doing it. It's tumultuous. It's challenging. It can be frightening. Um, it can be completely shattering. And to pause long enough to say, okay, and you were doing like 70, 80 talks a year, um, you know, you've got children, you've got a, a very busy life, both professionally and personally. But to say, no, I'm going to, you know, I've heard this from four different places now, as you said, four very wise women, that if I'm going to write this book, The Healthy Organization, then I need to get healthy and to carve out the time to do that. What were were some of the things that during that time, some of the profound realizations that came to you around, what does it mean to be awakened? If we just look at this word, awakened, awake. What does that actually mean when we talk about it?
0: It's about seeing the whole picture. It's about connecting to your true self. It's about constantly reminding yourself of certain things to stay awake. And it's one thing to awaken another to stay awake, right? So how do we remind ourselves? So for example, some of the things I learned in that that, uh, ayahuasca experience, I got this Vision. These four words. um, That this is what we need in order to heal, and this is what the world needs in order to heal. And it came as an acronym, the list, and that's love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. That everything we do should come from love. Every action, every thought, um, should be rooted in love, not fear and not greed. I think many business decisions are rooted in fear and greed very often, Uh, not anger, not jealousy, etc. And that takes a constant reminder, you know? You have to have a pause between your stimulus and response, as Viktor Frankl writes about, and within that pause is your opportunity to choose how you're going to respond. So I think to be awake is to be aware of that present moment, reality and an opportunity, and then to choose your response accordingly. So I'm trying to cultivate that, right? To, uh, and then look back at the end of the day and say you know did i in fact everything today did it come from that place or was some of it coming from other places you know and try to make that a default state uh, innocence choosing to live with innocence what does that mean we're all born innocent but then somehow we get a little corrupted by the world right and we end up using our intellect and our capacities in order to climb over others and maybe trick others maybe we lie and sh- cheat to get what we want some you know we, our culture you know, uh, you know brings that to a lot of us uh, but as an adult we can choose we can return to innocence so what does that mean not knowingly causing harm or suffering to another did i do that you know have i caused unnecessary pain now some suffering and pain is unavoidable You can't inoculate from all of it but but certainly most of it i would say is preventable and unnecessary so things like that, to me, it's about uh, staying awake to what truly matters as well. So the third word was simplicity, L-I-S-T, which is what really matters. And those, are, those things are simple, right? So again, what really matters? You know, a friend of mine got diagnosed with brain cancer and he had three months to live, um, Danny Friedland. He was a wonderful doctor and then a leadership teacher. And it was so inspiring what he did in his remaining time. He made it all about, he said, it's all about the giving and receiving of love. And that's what life is about. And he made a video every single day about his his experience and all the insights that were coming to him. And he said, this is the most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me because what's coming through me now is something I never had before. And he left behind this legacy. After three months, he was gone, but he left behind this legacy of the nobility and sort of dignity with which he handled that and also how he made it a beautiful experience so recognizing what really matters and then the last one is truth what is our commitment to the truth right and that too is a slippery slope you know we live in a world of where truth seems to have lost meaning people talk about facts and alternative facts and true facts and you know um, what is the truth truth is fundamental and Acknowledging the truth and facing up to the truth can be quite hard, but you need that. You know, without truth, there's no peace. You know, Nelson Mandela and uh, Desmond Tutu realized that, and that's why they created the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Because there's no, there's no reconciliation, there's no peace without first acknowledging the truth and then atoning for it. You know, with the reality of what happened under apartheid, and so those are some of the kinds of things that I think of being awake. Means being constantly reminding yourself because it's easy to fall back into a rut and you know, do sort of the automatic response. It's getting out of the automatic response. You know, that we have we've got all these neural pathways now, after in my case now 65 years, that automate how we respond to things, but can we change that pattern? Can we break that pattern? You know, one of the beautiful practices that I saw at a retreat in India some years ago. Um, was that after each person spoke, it was a gathering of uh, what we call the consciousness collaborative, Chitta Sangha, there were about 20 of us sharing our perspectives. But the practice was that after each person spoke, that there's silence for about 10 seconds. And right? you absorb what they just said. You don't just, you know, typically what happens, people are just jumping right in and it's like popcorn, you know, pop, 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 pop. Nobody's really taking time to absorb and, and and give a thoughtful, not a reaction, but a response, you know. Yeah, these are some of the practices, I think. You know why you're here. You know what really matters. You're committed to some of these principles. Um, and ultimately, you realize, yeah, it, it indeed is as simple as that, the giving and receiving of love. That's why we're here, you know. We're here to grow ourselves and to give of ourselves in, in the way that we are intended to or what what the gifts were that we came here with so how do we how do we cultivate that
1: you know you and i have we're discussing over email and also when we first came on this call um the fact that my we have my husband and i we've just relocated our family to spain for and the driving force behind that decision was how much of our lives at the moment and we have beautiful life In Australia. You know, careers we're very grateful for, communities we're very grateful for, beautiful life. But how much of us right now is pro is a programmed self? You know, how much how much of what we do, how we think, how we behave, the decisions that we're making, how much of that is is just set and forget, programmed? And how much do we want to be programmed, or how much do we want to create a space where anything any Anything could happen, anyone, anyone, any new idea could come in, any new evolution could happen. But first of all, and one of the things that I think that we're discovering through this process is that you have to ask yourself the questions of, you know, how much of what I do, what I think, what I have created comes from a place of truth or fear. That's probably one of the best pieces of advice I ever received. It's not from me. It's from a mentor of mine. And, you know, they said every single decision you make, every single word that comes out of your mouth, every single part of your life has stemmed from either truth or fear. And your job is to make sure that as much of it as possible comes from a place of truth, which could be replaced with a place of love. How much are we making decisions out of fear? How much am I creating out of fear? Or how much of it is, no, I've taken time to take stock and this is actually true for me. This is still true for me. I'm not just doing it because I'm programmed and I've done it for so long. This is still very true for me. Or this part is, but this part, no. I don't feel that way anymore. This idea of kind of truth or fear, when you took that time, what parts of yourself did you kind of discover were coming from a place of fear? That when you asked those questions, even if it wasn't easy, you wanted to start to let go of.
0: Yeah, I think there was a lot of that. You know what I've realized in these years, and that starting then, is that I was living my life in many ways uh, out of fear and out of a need to belong, a need for approval. Um, you know, we were with Gabor Mate in, in in Costa Rica. You know Gabor Mate's work on the wisdom of trauma, and one of the things I learned is about the attachment versus authenticity. Right, that we we are often caught between these poles of attachment and authenticity. In other words, being true to yourself, or wanting to belong and wanting to be liked and accepted, and that got programmed into me at an early age. I think with my father, because I didn't know my father until I was seven. He came back from Canada and then then we moved to Barbados and so forth. And the message I got from him was, you know, everything that was natural to me or that came, you know, that was part of who I was, was, was not okay. And he saw all of those things as flaws and weaknesses and that I needed to be the opposite because that's kind of how he was, right? And so because I so desperately wanted his approval, I tried to suppress whatever was natural to me. So I was very trusting, I was idealistic, I was very peace loving, et cetera. He wanted me to be the opposite of all those things. Don't trust anybody, you know, be pragmatic, not idealistic, right? Uh, be rough and tough, right? Not be you know, not so much into peace. And so in order to belong, because the father's approval means a lot, obviously. Um, I kind of suppress my authenticity. And I suppressed my emotions, I repressed my anger over, over, not only as a young child, but even later, I would say. And all of that ends up going inside you, you know, it doesn't disappear, it doesn't vanish. Unexpressed emotions and repressed anger don't vanish. They metastasize inside you. And they show up as chronic pain and even chronic disease, uh, disease uh, perhaps later in life. You know, so those were some of the things that I was starting to realize, fears that I had, the need to belong, the need for approval and making sense of my life you know that was the other thing that that started to happen there what seemed like a pretty random life in terms of you know where i was born and then what happened and then yeah you know it's like wow it's like careening from one you know extreme to another Uh, being born in a village with no electricity and water and then you know you're in california and you know during the hippies you know and watching the moon landing and you know it's just like whoa and then going back to india and back into kind of a 19th century reality almost and then coming back to New York city in the eighties, which is, you know, kind of insane, you know, back then, uh, making sense of it all and starting to see that indeed there were patterns and there were kind of connections over time. So for example, one of my first plant journey experiences, I was almost shown a movie of my early childhood in that village and i was literally a baby one or two years in that mm-hmm. that depiction and but i could see the abuse all around me i could see my grandfather yelling at the women i could see the women abusing the other women the, you know abusing the workers and all of the every possible kind of abuse going on in that hyper patriarchal feudal culture i was born into the warrior class in india in a particular feudal version of that you know within that and the message was you had to experience the worst of this feudal, patriarchal, hyper dominated, misogynistic uh, culture so that you would write a book about the feminine 55 years later, right? Um, and those kinds of connections started to, to happen. That yeah, I, I, I was born into a particular set of circumstances and I had a particular set of experiences so that it would then result in the bringing forth of of things that were needed in the world through me. So we all become an instrument, a channel, right? That evolution is kind of expressing itself through us. We have to go through, you know, there's a wonderful book called Synchronicity by Joseph Jaworski, which expands on these ideas, right? That it's not what we call random, you know, coincidences or just accidents, but really that there's some implicate order that is... In a way, creating certain collisions and certain kinds of things to happen, because there's certain things that need to come into the world. That kind of idea. It's also rooted in quantum physics. I mean, it gets pretty mystical at some point.
1: It, it, you know, as a as a rabbit hole, I have I have travelled down and continue to travel down. It does. It gets it gets very out there and very interesting, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very. True to experience, that's probably the best way I can say it. You know, 20 years doing this, it it is very true to my experience. And probably more, uh, you know, if you want to put it into a kind of a practical, grounded container, you know, there is a unique lens that everybody brings to a conversation. You know, there is, we call them the intersections, you know, every human being is a variety of intersections. You know, there is your, your childhood. There is the things that you study, There are experiences that only you have had, perspectives that only you can bring. And when all those intersections come together, there's this place in the middle, which is a conversation that only you can drive, a position that you are only you are qualified to drive, something that only you are able to bring forth. And, you know, I think that has been a recurring, seems to have been a recurring theme in your life. These, these intersection points, and you've always had the courage to step into them. You know, you had the courage when you kind of became disillusioned with the marketing world, having studied it and traveled across the world, and you know, going to build an entire career around it. You had the courage to step back and go, "Hang on, something doesn't doesn't feel right here." Talk a little bit about that, because I think that's really helpful for anybody who you know wants to understand these various points for you.
0: Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, it is about staying true to yourself, despite all of the pressures to conform and become, get molded, you know, we get molded in a hundred different ways, right? By our parents, by our culture, by our profession, our mentors and so forth. And all of that is good. We need that. But we should not lose ourselves in the process. So staying connected to your essence as a human being and trusting that, when you have a certain reaction to something that uh, you know, there's some truth that you're seeing that perhaps others are not. So when I came to my PhD program accidentally, as I write about, right, I, I didn't grow up with a dream to become a marketing professor. I don't know if any child that does, in my case, it happened somewhat accidentally. I had not heard the word marketing until two years before I entered a PhD program. Right. I was, you know, I got an MBA and I chose marketing. I didn't like finance. And then I accidentally, learned that you can get a phd and a group of my friends were applying and i said oh i'll apply too and i ended up coming almost as a way to get back to the u.s i lived here as a kid and here's an opportunity to come back with a fully paid scholarship you know into columbia university in new york and so i said of course why not and i did that but then i found myself immersed in a world that did not resonate with me you know that marketing in the u.s was almost at a manic level the amount of money that was being spent, the messages that are constantly being put out, I mean it's like you know it's inescapable and, and so inauthentic and causing real damage at the same time, you know, when we use women's bodies to sell products. Well what does that do? It sells maybe a few products. What does it do to the psyche of young women and the image that gets created and we're eating disorders and body dysmorphia? There's a lot of research about the real costs of these things when we do them, right? And likewise, there were so many other things. So so I saw that, wow, we're spending so much money. It's pervasive. And what are the impacts of all of this? And So I was stepping back and looking at a bigger picture. And meanwhile, everybody in my PhD program and most of the professors and all my fellow students were all very content to look at, you know, just one little piece of that and how they can add to the edifice that already existed, which was, maximize, you know, sales, maximize market share, maximize profit, that's that's the purpose. <clears throat> we never spend a single day talking about the purpose of business or what is your purpose. Business's purpose is to make money and your purpose is to publish as many articles as you can so that you can get promoted. You know, it's our own version of profit maximization. It's publication maximization. But what are you writing about and what impact that's having? It doesn't matter. As long as it makes it through the journal editors and the reviewers, that's fine. So none of that appealed to me. None of that, as I said earlier, none of it inspired me. Certainly none of it engaged me emotionally. The only emotional engagement I had was on the negative side. I had a sense of shame. I had a sense of, um, yeah, really shame, I guess is the right word, you know, that what we're doing here. You know, Columbia University is in the middle of Harlem in New York. and This is in the 80s, there were 3000 murders a year. I mean, the city was, you know, dilapidated. And, but within our Ivory Tower campus, you know, none of that was ever talked about or, or a factor. So, and so over the years, I, I developed this habit of questioning and asking, is there a better way? Is there a better way? And I think that's a very important question because the answer is always yes. It right? doesn't matter how how well things are working, there is a better way. In that case, it wasn't working, so there's certainly a better way. And, and so I started inching my way towards that. In the beginning, I was writing about everything that was wrong. But then eventually I flipped the switch and said, okay, how do we do it? Well, how do we do it right? If we believe that this way of doing things is wrong, they're inundating people with ads and coupons and filling up their mailbox with uh, with, with junk that goes straight into the trash bin, you know, enormous waste and to no real effect, certainly not benefiting. You know, I looked at customers, companies, and society. What is all this doing? And I found negative impacts on all three, in many ways. The only thing it's doing is causing us to consume more, and therefore generate more money for companies. But it's not making us happier or healthier. It's not creating a more functional society, and it's not—it's uh, actually not working that well for companies either. And so all of that searching then led me to the path of trying to find a better way. So a book that started as a Shame of Marketing eventually became In Search of Marketing Excellence, which eventually became Firms of Endearment, which I think we we probably talked about that in our last conversation.
1: We did, we did, which, you know, even then, when you said you were going to write a book called The Shame of Marketing, <laughs> I mean, to think, <laughs> to think that, you know, you would be part of that world and then end up writing a book called The Shame of Marketing, um, again, I think just speaks to this continual commitment or willingness to step in and and ask some questions why am I doing this what am I doing this for how do I feel about what I'm doing is this from truth or fear love or fear Um, and you have some beautiful questions in the book you know one of the questions that I wrote down was reflect on common practices in your profession and your surroundings do any of them cause you pain what suffering leaves others indifferent but transfixes you What can you see that no one else sees? What do you say that nobody else says? Again, that finding that place, that purpose, that conversation that only you can drive, that space that only you can hold, where all of your memories, all of your past experiences come together. You also said, which goes back to to the memories that you were sharing, that every memory that you have stands out for a reason. It has something important to teach you. What were some of the core memories from your childhood? And there were a lot in the book. Some incredible. I mean, your life has just been a roller coaster, of a global roller coaster of, of memories. What are some of the core ones that stand out that you felt like you needed to re-examine or reframe?
0: Yeah, well, of course, many of them are trauma-related, I think. Um, small traumas and some large traumas. I think one of the memories that stands out. Okay, so if I go back early in my childhood, right? So memory that stands out when my father came back from Canada after his PhD. I was seven years old, and there was a, a tumultuous welcome from him. I mean, it was you know, it was like the, the return of you know, uh, you know, this kid from the village who had gone all the way across the world in 1960 and come back with. The, you know, PhD, and there was like a procession of cars over you know, 50 miles from the where the train came to our village and there were banners, you know, at every town and village along the way. And you know, I was like on the sidelines of all of that. You know, it, it was, I didn't even, how can that man be my father? I'm just like this little village kid, you know, in my shorts and T-shirt and, you know, not very well-kempt. Um, and so that was, that kind of implanted this larger than life image of my father and you know, all like, oh, I could never aspire. I mean, this is like you know, beyond the pale, right? And then that same father a year later, not even a year later, we were in Barbados and he had asthma and he felt an asthmatic attack coming on and he needed his inhaler, which was on the other side of the room where I was playing. It's a big living room. And so he, because he was short of breath, he couldn't walk across. He just gestured to me to bring over that thing. And I didn't understand what he meant. You know, and I just picked up the inhaler and I was kinda of shaking it and pretending to inhale and I you was know, just fooling around. And he picked up his, his shoe or slipper and, and flung it at me and it hit me on the side of my head as I was looking some other direction. And that just stunned me, you know. And it I just I had such a reaction to that because I already was in awe of him and I I thought that he didn't approve of me or I wasn't enough and and now I said, Oh my god, he hates me. You know, because throwing a slipper at somebody's head, I think in our culture especially carries carries a lot of meaning. So that was a memory that that, that stuck with me. Um, a memory when we came back from five years of being abroad, and first in Barbados, then California and Canada, and then we were back in India, and suddenly we we're thrust back into that feudal world of my village and you know that whole Rajput warrior uh, mentality and way of being. When it was a, a young boy about my age, 12 years old, he was sent to live with us in the city and to basically be the domestic help, right? And his family had been part of serving our family for generations. It's almost like a form of indentured servitude. So his father and mother and you know their fa- parents, you know, they had been serving our family because my grandfather was the overlord of that whole village, you know, 500 acres of land and a title and all of that. And so there was all of that kind of uh, historic tradition. And he and his siblings were all doing some kind of work for the family. So he was sent to work for us. And one day he did something, I think he either sat down in a chair at the dining table or he picked up a piece of fruit and ate it. And he wasn't supposed to do that apparently. Now we didn't, of course, I didn't care, or we didn't care, you know, my mom. But my cousin in the village found out that this kid has misbehaved, you know, so to speak. He's stepped out of his, you know, st- station in life. He's not supposed to sit in the, they're supposed to sit on the ground, right? So he literally made a trip from the village to the city and he dragged this kid out of the house, He tied him to a tree in the yard. You know, in full view of passers-by, right? If they're going down the street. You could see this tree was in the front yard. He tied him with a rope and then he took off his belt and he proceeded to whip this kid. Of course, who's crying and begging for mercy and, you know, and I'm standing there just stunned. I mean, we were just back, you know, back from the U.S., right? And witness that scene. And I was kind of paralyzed in the moment either. And I didn't have, this was an older cousin, right? I didn't have the wherewithal to say, stop that. And I was just kind of stunned into uh, in action. But that that scene is so vivid in my memory. It's almost out of a movie like 12 Years a Slave or something, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that happened, you know? But that kind of imprinted on me as well. Wow, this is the culture that I'm part of, you know. And in many ways, the beneficiary of. Because there's a caste system in India, and I happen to be in one of those castes, you know, which has privilege. And there are people who are born into servitude, and they're abused and treated. And by the way, their almost free labor is what allows us to do all the things we do, you know. So even though I would never do those things, and yet I'm the beneficiary of all of that abuse as well at the same time, you know. And so this whole identity that was thrust on me, and that same cousin would keep filling my head with stories of the glory of the Rajputs, and you know how we are, you know we are special people, and so forth. Um, for a while, it made an impression on me. Then, after a while, I just completely rejected it. I said, "This is," and I, and I saw all the many ways in which everybody was abusing the women in the house, but the women workers were getting abused. My uncles and others were doing so many things that were just incredibly abusive physically, sexually, you know, financially, every different way. And and that abuse kind of permeated this. It started from the top. My grandfather, you know, had that way of being. And there was no love, only exploitation and using each other. A lot of fear. and And everybody became that, you know. not everybody I had a cousin who remained very gentle and loving but mostly everybody became co-opted into that system so so yeah those are some of the things that stand out and then of course later on things that happened between me and my father some of the traumas related to me wanting to be my own person and marry somebody of my choosing and so forth that that became like an incredible um, life-changing kind of ordeal Because my father made such a stand about that, that he refused to let me do that. And then he pulled out all the stops to prevent that from happening.
1: One of the lines that particularly struck me in the book, one of the many, um, was a line that said, it had been 19 years since I had shed tears of any kind, which... I I I don't know if it's as as a woman. I don't know if it's culturally um, or just personally is really hard to 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 imagine. It's really hard to to conceive of of not shedding any tears for for nearly two decades. What was the what was the impact of that? On your life was was there was there any impact how did that play out that kind of frozen frozen boy
0: yeah well yeah. you know the origin of that was that in my marriage you know early on to somebody I, I didn't really know very well you know somebody i had met and thought i would um i was exploring the idea of marriage and that's when i mentioned it to my father he just made such an enormous you know his reaction was so out of proportion that kind of uh, froze me in my intent, you know, that basically it became about him and me, not about you know, the person. It was became a matter of self-respect and my own individuation from him. And, but the result of that was that, you know, we didn't really know each other very well and understand each other very well. And so, so in that first week of marriage, literally as we were watching a movie and I was a sensitive kid, you know, I always was, uh, we watching a movie called ordinary people and it it was the saddest movie i would ever seen you know and uh, so i had tears in my eyes as i'm watching and my wife looks over to me and says what are you doing i said what do you mean why are you crying i said it's the saddest movie i have ever seen and she said what kind of a man cries i've never seen a man cry and my reaction to that was just oh my god you know i can't be myself you know, i cannot be who I am because that's not enough and that's not okay. I had just fought this battle with my father to go through this and now I'm getting, and I didn't have the emotional maturity in the moment to actually step back and say, why do you say that? You know, what is it in her upbringing that makes her think that men are not human or cannot express emotion? But I just kind of saw it as an indictment of me because I was so in that mode of my father criticizing me and saying everything about me is wrong and bad. And it just kind of added to that, you know, and I kind of built a wall around my art. And I said, I cannot, this is weak and I can't allow myself to express. And so yeah, literally for the next almost two decades, I was unable to cry for anything, forget movies. I mean, even if somebody died in our family, I couldn't summon tears, even if I tried. And um, so yeah, that that really, uh, you know, created, as I said, that emotional boundary. Self-protection, I think is ultimately why these things happen. But but, but the way it was pierced, as you as you mentioned, 19 years later was literally writing some of the stories of these companies. And somehow that broke through and nothing else had broken through. And I, that uh, touched my heart, you know, and that's basically said, yeah, there was, my heart wasn't fully shut off, you know. And for that to happen in the context of work, I think it was profound because as I said, things hadn't touched me in my real life. And now suddenly something I'm writing about a company and people I've never met, and then suddenly I'm touched. I said, wow, this this is significant, you know? It means something. And that was the moment in which in a a way my purpose landed on me. I said, I wanna tell this story of business. I wanna make my life about this, that businesses can do beautiful things for people, right? Deep humanity can exist there. So, so yeah, that was. And I wouldn't say that the uh, the floodgates fully opened at that point. It took me another quite some years, really, to get emotionally open. I mean, I think my ayahuasca journey was part of that as well. Um, for the first forty-five minutes or so, I don't know how long. I just cried. And I probably, I remember the feeling even in that transformed state that first time I cried without shame and without self-consciousness. Usually, when we Very often when people say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm getting teary, I'm sorry, you know, there's a lot of apology that goes with with people um, having the courage or or trusting themselves and others to be willing to share their heart. You know, most of us are not in those environments most of the time, you know. So yeah, I think it's been a journey to reconnect with that part of myself because, you know, what happens in our society if you're sensitive, especially if you're a boy or a man, you know, that is that is demeaned and denigrated, right? That is like, and, and all of the ways in which people are ridiculed and mocked is it's really about comparing men to women. And somehow that's the worst thing, you know, that could be certainly in my culture where I came, came from, right? I mean, my grandfather would literally dress a boy or, you know, in, in like women's clothes if they showed any of those kinds of things, you know, put on bangles on your feet and, you know, put on a dress, you know, and if you're going to be like that. You know, so, uh, so yeah, we 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 take the humanity out of them, and that gets suppressed and bottled up, and that leads again to violence and anger, and all of these things come from that wounded inner child inside many men. All the tyrants of history, you know, have that his you know have that in common. I think, and to
1: also bring your bring your whole self. You know, I feel like we we get so compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. Woman, man—it's—it's it's breaking down now. Um, but the—I know certainly as myself in business, you know, the breakthroughs in business came for me when I learned more and more, bit by bit. You know, in hard ways, in you know struggle ways, and I wish I had been shown, you know, how to integrate that kind of masculine, and feminine side of myself—the—the the feminine being. You know, compassion, the ability to be able to listen, to receive, to hold space, and the masculine—you know—being mission and boundaries, and you know, go, and go and you know, to bring those two things together as a whole, integrated human being. Um, and I feel like you know we have done a huge disservice often to people by asking them to be only half of what makes a whole, integrated, healthy human. And, you know, we have masculinity goes too far, it's unhealthy. You have femininity goes too far, you know, unhealthy, you bring them together. What's the, how are you seeing that play out? Obviously, this is your purpose now. This is part of your purpose now. How are you seeing that play out? You know, you talk about um, healing leaders. How do you see that play out in the workplace?
0: Yeah, so it's it's giving people uh, not only permission but also a pathway towards wholeness. Uh, it's, it's 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 bringing the healthy feminine energy uh, that's missing for men, many men, and now some men already have that and they meet the other side, right? They might meet the healthy masculine, but it's 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 again bringing that awareness that both of these together are really what define a human being. That you can be both tough-minded and tender-hearted at the same time, as Martin Luther King said. Uh, so how do we recognize that in ourselves, and then cultivate that? And I think, as you pointed out, your experience—you know—in the past, to some degree, today, in a male-dominated world, even the women who rose or aspired to positions of power had to bring that masculine side much more and had to suppress their their natural feminine instincts and, and uh, inclinations. I think with with uh, awareness and with rising numbers, like when you're one woman in a boardroom of twelve, you know it's very hard to do that, but when you're three or four, then you can actually be authentic and bring that so it's it's both sides. you know a lot of our work in Shakti leadership has been about taking women through leadership programs and getting them to integrate. Uh, but the other side of that is also bringing men and getting them to integrate the feminists, and, and given that many leaders today you know, numerically are men that is even the larger opportunity, having them be comfortable. And so in these programs that we do and getting people to be authentic and vulnerable and a lot of tears and those kinds of things come into the room and we welcome that. That's when people are truly open and being true and authentic to who they are. That's when transformation can start to happen. And so we bring together in in that healing leader program, for example, we try to have an equal number of men and women and part of that also we do this gender reconciliation circle where we have the women in the inner circle and the men in the outer circle and then the women answer a series of questions about what it's like right, to be a woman, what are their fears, what are their hopes, aspirations, etc. Uh, and then and the men are there to bear witness and then we flip that and then the men speak and the women bear witness. And, and then it leads to some you know, empathy and realizations that you know, what, what people are confronting and, and thinking about. So there's those kinds of experiences that we try to do to bring people towards that. We do now take it beyond masculine, feminine, also to the elder and the child, right? So the elder energy and the child energy, in ad- addition to the healthy mother and father energy. So the phrase that we use is the wise fool of tough love.
1: Walk me through that. Wise fool of tough love. Each
0: of us embody the wisdom of the elder, the playfulness and innocence of the child. Strength of the strong love uh father and the unconditional love of the strong mother. And how can each of us embody that within ourselves? Because we each have we have a higher self, right? How do we get in touch with that higher self where wisdom and purpose and meaning and all that reside? How do we stay connected to our inner child and make sure that's a healthy, not a wounded inner child? Because many of us have wounded inner children, right? Um, and then of course cultivating the masculine and the feminine, right? Being uh, as I said, tough-minded, tender-hearted, etc. And so, yeah, that those are practices I think that we can uh, cultivate to become our own version of that, that each of us can be a unique, wise fool of tough love.
1: You know, you said on, at the end of the book, you know, it's one thing to awaken, it is another to stay awake. What does staying awake look like for you now? Is it periodical pauses? Is it a day-by-day practice, a breath-by-breath? And I asked this as much for myself as as anybody who's listening.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, it's what I said earlier: it's reminding yourself and about those things that that matter and uh, the, the ways of being that uh, that we've come to realize, uh, and and then putting that pause and putting that time for reflection to say, did I operate from love, not fear and greed and anger? Did I um, knowingly cause harm to anybody, etc.? I focus on what really matters. And have I been committed to the truth, for example, just to take that list, right? Um, but I think it requires just that mindfulness. It gets back to mindfulness. If you're mindful, then you're going to be observing your own behavior, noting it and correcting it over time to say, yeah, this is when I fell out of that. You know, So I think that to me is what it means to stay awake, is to stay mindful and observe, be the observer of our own, reactions and actions, and over time get get it aligned more and more. It's a work in progress, I think, for all of us. We all constantly fall off the wagon multiple times a day, but I think it gets better over time.
1: It's a practice, going back to you know the concept of mindfulness. It is a practice. Well, thank you so much. It's so good to see you again um, and to talk to you again and to hear your voice through the book which contains so many more. I mean, I've got pages and pages of, of notes here. So for anybody who's listening, awaken, if you're at a point where you feel like there's a there's a crossroads or something's just not feeling, like it has the the energy for you that it used to, I, f- I feel it's a perfect, a perfect read. So thank you so much, Raj.
0: You're very welcome, Julie, great to see you again. Enjoy your time in Spain. And I look forward to our next conversation.
1: Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, julimasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you. But it is jam packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20 plus years of doing this work. Not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.